Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. Uh, before it begins, I just want to give a huge shout out to our guest, Peter Harris. Uh, he gave us an incredible interview today. If you spent any time at Wolf Ridge in the last 20 years or so, you were taught by Peter Harris about the outdoors. It's just such a great speaker and we were so glad to have him on and we look forward to having him again in the future. So I hope you guys all enjoyed this episode. And we're back. Welcome to the 11th episode of The Hindland, everyone. I'm Sam. I'm Winston. And I'm Ben. And this week we're sitting down with Peter Harris, uh, a naturalist and science citizen science expert at Wolf Ridge Environmental Learning Center. Um, I met him while working up there and did a lot of bird banning with him and a lot of other uh, wild adventures. Uh, Peter, could you tell us a little bit how you got to like where you are? Well, first of all, thanks for um, inviting me to participate. It's quite an honor. And I got to where I am through a combination of chance and taking paths. And by that, I mean that um, I think there's random things that have happened in my life where uh, opportunities have come up, like meeting a friend after graduating and said, hey, maybe you want to work at an environmental learning center, having no idea what they are, going and doing that, then following another friend to another place and ending up in a permanent job. So um, it was times like that that kind of got to me where got me where I'm at. My parents also were really into uh, taking us out on adventures from the time I was very little. So that uh, kind of got me into the adventure mode of exploring and that had a big factor in my life. Nice. Um, one thing that you've really changed my mind about while well, I've known you is before I really got to here, I didn't really understand birding or like the birding community. And I was like, oh, weird. People are really about these like little things that are flying really fast, far away from me. Um, and while spending time with you, I've learned a lot about birds and definitely appreciate them a lot more now. Uh, how did you get involved with like birding? And can you mention bird banding? Yeah, so the first birding I did was about the age of one month. Um, my dad taking me out, he was, he was a bird watcher, and so he would take me out. And uh, I would bird, and I actually hated going out to look at birds when I was a kid. Um, and, and then I got to college and had the opportunity to get involved more with studying natural history. And one of the first natural history classes I took was ornithology and kind of got uh, hooked on it in the enthusiasm of it. And I've always had a hard time. I have dyslexia, so it's, it's hard for me to remember names and numbers and things like that. But uh, with the birds, uh, a couple things. One is they, they really stood out, so trying to remember who they were would uh, help me. And uh, as time went on, I, I participated in research, and one of the, starting in the 1980s with birds, and had jobs where I would radio cluck collar spruce grouse and rough grouse, and then uh, counting birds. And um, when I got to Wolf Ridge, it was like, how could we get kids up close with birds? Because sometimes it's frustrating. You can see them with binoculars, but still, some of the spectacular parts of them, how do you get them close in a legitimate way? And so doing bird banding where you catch a bird in a net or in a special trap, and you can study them as far as who they are, 
their age, their sex, their species, and um, put a small marker on them. And during that process, you can also show people the bird up close. Maybe it's their beak with a nostril that's in the beak. Or maybe it's the ear, which you can't see behind the feathers, and a lot of other things. And watch people's eyes open up. And so I had kind of see that, seen that happen at some nature centers in the Twin Cities. And um, it's something Wolfridge hadn't been doing, or at that time we were called the ELC up in Isabella. So I started um, getting involved with banding. And one thing led to another, and people got more enthusiastic with it. We became um, a pretty active spot for teaching bird classes. So a lot of kids taking our three-hour class. And, excitement i could see in those faces and i know sam you, you've seen kids like eyes light up when they, they see a bird and when it flies away so that's where kind of it started and um we now are also a major research area in northeastern minnesota for birds especially around banding and also a national education center for banding where we have people coming from actually around the world uh to learn banding what sort of research uh, are you involved in or have you been involved in in the past? Okay, so with bird banding, um, it started as a way for people to figure out where birds were traveling. And some of the first bands that were put on birds were by the Romans. Or, um, yeah, by the Romans. And they would mark their, their um, hunting hawks, you know, with some kind of tag. And if they got lost, hopefully they'd be returned. And um, modern day, uh, some people like Audubon that you hear um, that studied birds um, would mark birds. He put little silver strands on some species. And then in the early 1900s, people really started to do it in the modern way. Because we, we, people had an inkling of North America for the birds uh, migrating to South America in the winter and for Europe going to Africa in the winter. But still, there was a lot of information not known, especially for preserving. So in the early 1900s is when banding really took off. And one thing to think about that's amazing to me is that if you were a kid back a long time ago and took a test um, and it was asked, where do birds go in the winter? If you were living in the northern hemisphere, one of the correct answers at one point would have been the moon. People thought that the birds went <laughs> to the moon. Another thought that the birds went and buried themselves in the mud. I mean, there were ideas that these small birds were hitching rides on the back of big birds. So there were a lot of mysteries out there uh, <laughs> trying to find out why these birds, where they were going and what was happening. And so that was the big census or uh, reason for the banning in the early 1900s. Um, it also, once we understood how they were traveling, you know, if you're traveling around, Minnesota has um, quite a few wildlife preserves in the Dakotas, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and those are spots for migrating birds, uh, a lot of them that were initially set up knowing where these migration paths are. And so from that initial information, uh, scientists were able to figure out that there's five, let me see, my counting's bad sometimes, so I'll just name them. So we have a flyway of birds, a highway on the east coast, the Atlantic Flyway, and using the Appalachian Mountains. And um, then the next one would be uh, going down the Mississippi River Valley. And then 
another one that would be uh, going the Rocky Mountains, and another one going on the Pacific. So how many is that? Um, four, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so four, four major highways that they figured out. And then it was important to understand to set aside, especially for ducks, uh, was one of the big concerns these preserves. Since then, um, science has been able to use this banning of putting markers on the birds uh, to try to learn about uh, populations. And so one of the big projects that Wolf Ridge is involved with involves many hundreds of stations around the United States, Canada, and uh, the goal is to look for population changes of birds. Uh, most small birds that we see at a feeder, 50% um, of them die their first year. The smaller the bird we've learned, the shorter their lifetime. So if you're a little chickadee, about your average lifetime is less than two years, or a little over two years, I'm sorry. And if you're a California condor, you're getting up to human, human years. Uh, so the bigger you are, and then if we, uh, science has also gotten much better at trying to figure out how old birds are. Because, of course, you can't go up there and say, excuse me, how old are you? <laughs> I thought I was going to be a veterinarian when I was in high school. And so I worked at vet clinics and, you know, I was I was got to these, um, these veterinarians, you know, trying to figure out questions that they couldn't ask the, the animals by asking the adults. And uh, that's essentially what we're doing, too, except it's for wild animals rather than for domestic. So you can figure out the age, the sex, and then just like in human censuses, like when we do the U.S. census we've just completed, we can get an idea of the population of birds, which is really important for bird conservation. Because if we see a particular age class of birds, it's it could tell us we need to maybe do some certain things. We can also, this is super cool, you can figure out where that bird that you captured springtime coming back from migration in the Central America, where it spent its winter by pulling one feather, grinding it up, the feather, not the bird, grinding the feather up and looking at some of the chemical analysis. And it'll tell you, like Sherlock Holmes doing certain things, exactly your CDI, CID, whatever, um, where that bird came from based on the idea that soils in Nicaragua versus Guatemala are different. The insects that are there or the plants that are there are going to have a different uh, chemical composition based on the soils and therefore the insects too. And so when those birds are eating, they reflect, their feathers reflect where they spent the, um, the winter because they, they grow new feathers, many of them, before they come back. So lots and lots of I mean I can keep going on but um, it's it's really cool um, this idea of catching birds marking them but there's a lot more we can learn besides just marking them okay so I have a question uh, it sounds like there is a whole lot of different uh, things to accomplish through bird research but one uh, thing that I'm curious about is how much collaboration is involved in uh, tracking birds, um, maybe with like, do you do like any radio tracking or how much do you communicate with other uh, bird researchers to sort of uh, figure out where they've been going besides just, you know, regular academic uh, research sharing? Sure. I don't know. Yeah, good question. Um, when bird banning first started out, it was kind of a citizen science 
truly a citizen science that uh, somebody um, would do this as a sport. It wasn't necessarily as coordinated, just the idea of getting all these bands on the birds would ultimately do it. Now we have coordination through um, both NGOs and government agencies, uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico all work together. They're wildlife groups. And there's, there's these working groups of scientists that are saying, these are questions we need to ask, just like you're asking there, you know, what are our primary things? Usually based on population decline, but also uh, secondarily, what are our habitats, you know, and what do we have to change as far as our conservation um, biology for managing forests, uh, streams, and lakes. So it is a coordinated effort. There's some bigger projects. So I have a, a permit that enables me to ban, but we also ban under particular studies. So a lot of these studies are large um, continentally based studies. And also there's a coordination of funding that would have to bring that information. So anybody can go into this database and pull information. So you might be banning a particular species that could be helpful for a particular question that you don't even know about, or you might be involved in a particular study that is trying to answer a specific question. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah, and uh, birds are considered kind of one of the best indicators of environmental health, uh, just because um, we have uh, a lot of species. They are a lot of times um, migratory and or uh, they'll also be spending their whole year in certain areas. So you could key in on different species and they are very habitat specific. So we can look at certain birds based on habitat, maybe based on so aquatic birds is mercury. So one of the studies that's happening nearby is they're looking at birds that would be eating things that would be associated with aquatic environments or near aquatic environments that might be absorbing mercury. And then they're looking to see at those look at those particular species of birds since they're towards the higher part of the food chain to see um, how the mercury in that aquatic situation is is, is um, being affected. Uh, I know when I was growing up, the first like introduction that I had to bird banding is I came across like a swan that hit a power line way down on our farm. And it had this huge like metal leg band on it, and so we got to like call the number on it and find out where it came from. Uh, have any of you ever come across any like bird bands or anything like that before? Not me. <laughs> uh, I always ran into them. I grew up uh, duck and goose hunting, so we would run into those, and obviously we'd always call them in if you shot a duck or goose that had one. It was always interesting to find out where they came from and where they've been. Yeah, and duck hunters are usually considered to be um, one of the bigger bird conservation groups. So, of course, we've seen declines in duck populations, so there's a lot of interest. But, yeah, the bigger the bird, the bigger the band, easier to see. So, yeah, it's, um, it's fun when I talk to kids. That's usually the situation is that they're from a hunting family and they've, 
uh, seeing bands that way. But about for every hundred bands, you might have one hundred bands. You might have one found by uh, somebody uh, that's died in, in some way. Do you uh, do you band uh, like grouse and pheasants at all, or is it just strictly for migratory birds? You can, um, and there's different kinds of bands that you can put on. So typically the bands are aluminum, they're round, and you're putting it on the bird's foot. So when you look at a bird, what you might think is the bird's leg is really its foot, and they're standing on their tippy toes. So it goes on the foot there, and there's specific band size for each bird. And so you can look it up in a book, and you can, you can decide what bird is going to go on. Um, endangered species. So my for my banding permit, um, it covers a lot of birds. So the passerines are birds that you typically see in feeders. There's lots of them. And warblers, uh, thrushes like robins, etc. The grouse can be banded. A lot of times uh, game birds uh, might be banded privately, too. So if you're if you're a game uh, farm, you might have your your non your game animals banded. But uh, we banded uh, spruce grouse and rough grouse and put also radio collars on them. You generally need you need to have a permit for the wild non game birds to do this, and it's um, it's like Sam spent time with me. Um, you uh, you apprentice under someone kind of get the skills, there's more classes, and it's becoming to be more of a um, requirement for game managers, because they're starting to use banding a lot more now, so you can go for classes. Um, but yeah, the, um, the other way that we're, bands we're using, uh, one of the people at Wolf Ridge is a volunteer, but he's a, a scientist that's been interested in chickadees. And so he has a special band on our chickadees that um, gives off a little bit of a magnetic signal, just like going over on a scanner on, at a checkout. And so that particular chickadee lands on a feeder that he's set up with this magnetic coil, and he knows that chickadee number 634 has landed there. And he can keep track of these chickadees uh, where they're landing and moving around. We also have on our antenna uh, something similar to that, and this this is a national study that um, you were asking about earlier, and it, it's a system that extends from Canada all the way down to South America, and it's uh, an antenna that can get pick up any birds migrating by that have these special bands on, and so we could keep track of um, like a broadwing hawk that might be migrating all the way to to down to central america and so wolf ridge has one of those sites and along the north shore they've installed about four or five of those sites uh we're studying or the scientists down at the university of minnesota duluth are studying blue jays to start with uh, but there's hope of uh, doing some other birds something that i didn't want to like gloss over there is it's not just songbirds that you like hang out and study they're also like raptors and other big birds of prey yes so the biggest bird that i've ever banded is a pileated woodpecker and the way that we typically catch them is um with nets so they look like fish nets they're uh, called a mist net 
And these nets are called that because literally you can't see them. First time I saw one was at Itasca Field Station in 1978. And um, I watched the um, ornithology's professor's 12-year-old ride his bicycle right into one. I mean, he didn't see it. <laughs> it was quite tangled. Uh, these nets were developed uh, in Asia and have been used for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, as a means for catching birds. So they'd be hand-woven, and they would be put on bamboo poles like a bat wing, and people would go out and catch these birds and use them for food, um, typical diet part of um, in Central America. So that's how um, we catch the birds, and, and sometimes, um, like we've been catching um, here at Wolf Ridge, we banded uh, a bird called a goshawk, which is a very large hawk. Um, and down at Hawk Ridge, of course, which I think a lot of people are familiar with in the Midwest, it's where they do a lot of studying of raptors. They catch bald eagles and, and um, red-tailed hawks, you name it, with, with nets, but also uh, with some other special, special um, traps, and then release them. So the big trick is we do not want to hurt the birds, and that's why you need to have a permit, just like you're a student driver. Don't, you, know, you don't want anybody hurting anybody, and you also want people to know how to identify the birds correctly. So just about every bird in North America or in the world has been banded at some point. Um, and that's kind of how we've learned that uh, some of these oceanic birds, you know, will spend time at sea for a good portion of the time, or a Arctic tern will circumnavigate the globe in a year. So amazing, you know, amazing thing. So Sam's right on that it, it's not just the little birds, but um, Lori, who works up at Wolf Ridge, uh, bans hummingbirds, and you need to have a special permit to do that. And that's incredible. The band is so small, it goes onto the hummingbird. Uh, and she studies them in particular. Yeah, so I have uh, a question related to catching birds. So I was actually really curious while you were, um, before you brought up about uh, the nets, but are there any particular species that are difficult to, um, maybe just because of where, uh, their habitat is or where they're migrating or are there any species that are kind of uh, maybe you know, harder to reach places or don't come down to like, I yeah. don't know, places where humans can access? Um, or yeah. what are some challenges pertaining yeah. to catching certain species? That's a good, another good question. So one example are ravens. Ravens are super intelligent. They can, they can count to five so they can actually you know, like a lot of birds, you can fool and go into a blind, send somebody in, and they can be, you know, pulling a little little cable inside. The bird doesn't know. Ravens would actually count. You'd have to send six people into a blind, and then they'd lose track. Um, so ravens are super smart There's for a bird. Um, they also are very suspicious of anything new. So it's, it's hard to catch ravens. Um, you don't do it very often. And so you have to come up with special techniques. Um, I've cut um, a spurs grouse on the other side of things with a landing net. And a spurs grouse, if you've never seen one, hangs out in the um, bogs. And we were studying them and radio collaring them. And you can 
pretty much they have the habit of not flushing like a rough grouse. So they'll, they, they'll just stand still or sit still, hope that people or animals just walk by that could be predators. And so if you see one, you can get up there with a landing net and catch it. So that's just the opposite. So it might be behavior that it's hard to catch the bird. Um, there are some birds that are very high in trees, like the Perula warbler, a beautiful orange bird. And it doesn't come down very low. It spends a lot of its time up in the tops of spruce trees. Uh, so that's another example of a bird that, that would be harder is one that's up areas. They have special poles where you can elevate them and, and pull them up. In the rainforest, they'll have these lines where they can go up very high up into these trees, uh, these tall trees in the rainforest and, you know, have them hundreds of feet, feet in the air. So they're, they're called aerial nets. They're up high. Um, it might be in nighttime. People that are using mist nets uh, um, might catch bats too. It might be another reason to ban. People ban bats, and so you can use them in the nighttime. But there's some nighttime birds that are challenging to catch. Um, and then sometimes it is just scarcity of the bird. You know, So if you're out there and trying to study a particular species, an example uh, might be the Connecticut warbler not super common um but harder to get well fridge actually has a pretty good population of a bird whose population is declining and it's called the um oh help me out sam i'm having a name blank um the golden oh, the golden winged warbler yeah golden winged warbler and um it's hybridizing with a blue winged warbler and the blue winged warbler is winning out so birds can actually, a lot of things that people don't know, birds can breed between species. So you could have um, a golden wing and a blue wing warbler breeding and they create this non-viable hybrid and it outdoes the population. So anyway, Wolfridge has a pretty good population of these golden wing warblers. And there were scientists from Cornell that came to our facility to want to ban the birds there because in some parts of the country, it's really hard to find them and try to understand their population. So those are three examples of why um, it might be harder to ban, ban birds. Intelligence, scarcity, and then the habitat that they use is hard for humans to get to. So uh, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit and actually ask you a question about something you mentioned in your intro. You mentioned you have dyslexia, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um i kind of have a two-part question here um so i went out i studied outdoor education too at umd and one of my biggest troubles was i'm i'm colorblind so i had a lot of trouble like teaching about birds and plants and stuff because it's hard to really identify them based off of color um what kind of challenges have you faced with dyslexia dyslexia in educating and then how would you teach people who have dyslexia or color blindness like what kind of stuff goes into that okay i think i'll start with the last part first so i was a kid that didn't read until i was in fourth grade my mom um and dad were pretty spectacular in the way they treated they didn't get married until they were quite a bit older so my dad was in his 50s and my mom was in her upper 30s and she um was an amazing person. She was uh, in World War II as a Marine, 
and uh, did amazing things, grew up in Iowa. And she ended up after the, using the GI Bill and going back to school and becoming a special ed educator. So if you've ever heard of the Courage Center, she uh, set up the first school there, the Courage Center for young kids. And so she was familiar with learning disabilities, more physical than, than mental, like dyslexia, but was aware of quite a few things. So when they figured out that I was having um, dyslexia uh, challenges, uh, she became my second teacher and my whole family was. And so like with a bird chart, she would make a special bird chart for me to go out and see things or numbers. I also had a spectacular teacher. I was in a class, I think of eight kids in second and third grade and i still keep track uh talking to miss durr who was my teacher then and all of these people were very outdoor oriented um a lot of problems with dyslexia is more emotional and confidence based and um one of the things that, that i found is yes i was um I was finding myself learning really well. As an environmental educator, what I've learned is the stuff that my teacher and my mom did with me are now best practices within the last 15, 20 years in environmental ed in particular and in education in general. And so we're not going to rote skills as much. We're going to analytical skills, imagination, and so what I had to do with the challenges that I have is to rewire my brain, uh, essentially the easy way that I, so that I could see things the same way to some degree that other people do. And then also build my confidence. And I think it was, yes, I had challenges in college, but what I learned is that identification wasn't everything. Yeah, you had to focus in on stuff, but learning interrelationships, how things work between each other was fascinating to me. And uh, coming up with questions of why this um, and how does this work rather than what is this? And I think that's something you can approach when people go outside. They don't have to know 15 animals. Technology, and I know Sam, you probably have both used it, is iNaturalist. So with the, some of the skills of technology too, people can be having the aids that'll help you on the idea of things, idea of things. So that was the, um, the second part. Maybe you can help me out with the first question was, um, what was it that you asked? Um, it was kind of how you, um, overcame that as an educator and how you help people who face things like, for example, me with the color blindness, how would you teach, uh, stuff like that like about how to see the birds because i know that was something i struggled with. people were like oh look at that bird in that tree and i'm like i don't see a bird in that tree like what are you yeah. talking about so so um so one thing um that i think you can do is again like i mentioned that what's good for people with colored blindness maybe is good for everybody to give you an example cornell labs has developed a new bird reference for ducks it's not color oriented it's pattern oriented with black and white. And so it's all looking at patterns that you see in black and white rather than saying with a wood duck looking for that particular thing. So there's an example of where it's not necessarily color, but 
you know, looking at a um, the two different uh, nut hatches we have commonly, the white breasted and the red breasted nut hatch, and looking for that black and white pattern, which is more than just that, but you would see in the head. So that's an example of color. Um, and again, going back to somebody that might have a hard time with writing, uh, it's so easy to put nature-oriented things in pictures uh, that you could be having them draw things out um, and, and doing that. And then not overwhelming people. I think that sometimes, you know, working with staff, so I got to work with Sam and I've gotten to work with uh, the naturalists that come up, and I admit my limitations, some of them get to be better nomenclature um, naturalists than I am very quickly. But if you, if you get them to be excited and learn two or three things or one thing, and I think in education in general, we're learning that rote stuff in your brain filled with things isn't as important as getting emotionally excited about something, realizing there's a reference I can go to to get that information, and then also not overwhelming anybody. Because um, show, you're showing off to everybody if you can spit out 25 birds when you see stuff. And there's a place for that. But um, it maybe it's when you take a group of kids out, you maybe hear 25 things, but you just point out two. And that's, that's kind of a humble but educated teacher that does that. Yeah, I think uh, something that like really drew me personally to outdoor ed and like environmental ed is I've got a learning disability related to uh, languages and especially like writing. I really struggle to write and it's really nice to have so many different options, you know, to like show that you're learning something or like learn through a different form by like, you know, being able to actually like look at a bird or, you know, look at a plant and instead of having to like write something about it. Along the same train of thought of uh, a little bit more of like things you've done before now, Peter, I know in the past you spent a lot of time biking and you're a really big biking advocate. Uh, I heard a little bit about like a trip that you took across the U.S. How did you get started biking across the U.S. and like where did you all go? Well, first, um, I think my... Uh my curiosity so we are kids that were kicked out of the house right away you know when we got home because not that my parents didn't want to visit but they wanted us outside doing stuff and so we had a neighborhood of bicycle riders where we try converting anything into into wheels um and using our imagination of how can we move from one place to another so i remember building um a submarine out of built right which is that stuff and getting my brother nailed into it and seeing if we could get it to float in the pool to you know taking skateboards and putting motors on them so we had a real curiosity towards movement and exploration and um my first uh first vehicle was a 57 chevy pedal car and which i had at the age of three and i remember breaking out of the front back gate or the back gate with the pedal car and and kind of hearing this, this is more stories, but evidently my parents yelling after one of them yelling after me. And I hit hit the road going down the back alley and supposedly, you know, went about 60 or 75 yards, took out the trash can, rolled the 57 Chevy and ended up in the emergency room. Uh, from that time on, I had no fear 
of doing anything on a bicycle and had lots of emergency room visits. I think I was hooked on wheels and um, used them when I was at the University of Minnesota to, um, to bike to class. So back in the 70s, the Minneapolis, the, 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 the lakes uh, had the bike paths, but the, still the roads didn't really have those kinds of bike paths like you can find now in the Twin Cities or a lot of Minnesota areas. Uh, but bicycling was still pretty common, and so I rode my bike a lot. And I didn't have a whole lot of money when I finished college. And as a kid, um, I grew up in Pennsylvania for a large part of the time. Every Sunday, my parents would take us out to some place. We'd visit it. In college, I had jobs um, mainly in Minnesota, and I had explored a lot of Minnesota that way. But I hadn't seen a lot of the country, and so I wanted to finish it. And also, I wasn't that confident in myself. So I had walked, I had seen somebody uh, do a slideshow that had, in like 1973, uh, that had gone from the tip of Alaska up in the Aleutians all the way to down to Tierra del Fuego. I'm sorry, I can't say that if somebody wants to say it. But the tip of Argentina. And um, it was amazing thinking about, wow, this guy did this on a bike. And then I saw their bike. And I had two really good friends, and Mary and um, this other friend, and I uh, decided to do some exploration when I was a senior in college. And so we did a trip uh, to Milwaukee, and that was really fun. And then we did a trip up to Duluth, and then I started hatching this idea. I wonder, and I think I like to travel out east where I grew up. And it had been, see, I had left in '71, and I had been in college, so it was like '83. So it'd been a long time since I had been back there. So it was September, and. I essentially had gotten the bike that summer that I wanted to Bianchi and I took and fixed it up and learned a few skills um, that I needed to know, but realized I didn't know that much and said bye to my mom. My dad had passed away by that time and she knew I was headed towards the East Coast. So I went in September um, up through the Sault Ste. Marie, and then across Canada, over to Buffalo, and then uh, down to Philadelphia. Along that route, um, I met people hiking, I stayed in people's backyards, I was invited in and uh, given meals. I, were, I was in places in Canada where no one spoke English. Um, I started to become a lot more gregarious. I was super shy being a kid that had a learning disability. And I knew I could get people to laugh, but I started to learn how to tell stories and I started to become more gregarious. When I got to the East Coast, I told my mom, I, I think I'm gonna head down to Florida. And so I spent Halloween in the hometown that I grew up in. And when you're on a bicycle and you have, you're gonna have panniers, uh, so you have like two bags in the front, typically a long distance bike and two in the back and they're called panniers. Uh, sometimes they could be psychedelic suitcases. I met one fellow, that Henry. He was out in the southwestern part of the United States when I met him. He had a, a huffy bike with high bars and two panniers. 
probably cost him a total of sixty dollars, but it worked. And I had a lot fancier, fancier um, system. So I could carry everything that I used for one year, probably in a big backpack. And on my bike, besides that, I would have um, a small micro tent, my sleeping bag, and then I also carried a, um, a one gallon water container where I took, it was before they had the water bags they now have. So I had a, a wine um, satchel and I took a soda bag around it and I could shape it. And that saved me in the Southwest a lot. So I headed down the East Coast. Um, it was amazing to see spring happen or fall happen because I left in September and I watched the leaves turning color going across um, Canada. And then going down the East Coast, I got hit in a, what's called a Northeaster. It's the next thing to a hurricane in the Carolinas. And then I ended up on the front page of the, um, not Roanoke, trying to remember the island, might have been Roanoke. It's one of the older um, communities in North America. And I got caught in this uh, storm, and one of the reporters did a story on me and ended up on the front page. So that kind of thing happened a lot where you got to an adventure and you were kind of a unique commodity. And then I ended up making it to Florida where I um, lived with a university professor that I had and two graduate students of hers, off and on with both. And I worked. planting native plants of Florida and also working in field biology. And they took me all over the place. So along this trip, people would just stop and say, hey, I want to show you this, or let's come on in, talk to me. Um, And 99.9% of people were super nice, super friendly, came to the conclusion that most people you don't have to worry about. Had a few, you know, kind of hard time. The, The roads on the East Coast, since they're older, they're not graded. They just go up really steep. And the hardest road actually to go up are county roads in Watt area in Wisconsin. So in the Driftless area, this area is just like up and down super steep. The next steepest places are the Appalachians on the East Coast. They, again, they're not graded roads. They're really steep. And um, the busiest roads are on the East Coast. There's not much line. I wrote a song to myself called The White Line Between Heaven and Hell. And sometimes you'd be having cars whooshing by you and you have this big truck go and you lean over about 10 degrees getting sucked down towards it. So as, as it went on, I got more and more confidence. Um, about Mardi Gras time, so right about now, I left my friends uh, in Florida and my mom was getting the idea that maybe this trip was going a little farther. So I told her I was headed to California and starting to make a square. And I headed to New Orleans, and um, I started meeting travelers from all over the world. I I lived in a hostel there, and uh, there were these travelers, and they kind of sucked me into their world. So I learned that Europeans, in particular, when they travel, do New York, New Orleans, and San Francisco. They kind of miss the Midwest. for various reasons, I almost ended up in Australia. I won't go into that story, but I didn't end up going to Australia. Instead, I ended up going west, and um, the deserts were incredible. So as I traveled, you know, there would be days where I'd see two cars, three cars. And so I headed into Texas, went down to towards Big Bend, 
And um, when you get down towards the, this was in the mid 80s. So when you get down to this area, um, those days it wasn't as a kind of scary deal going down to the Rio Grande and crossing into Mexico. Uh, so I met quite a few interesting people, both from Mexico and from the United States. I saw some things happening, like uh, people that were pretty poor, uh, trying to make a living for themselves. And I also saw some beautiful landscapes. And the desert, the thing that impressed me was it doesn't matter what part of the desert you're in, there's always green somewhere. It's like you can't, you, you can't miss um, and I ended up in a little town called, um, so as you'll find, one of the things I can't remember is time or name places, but Del Rio, I think was the name of the town. And there was a movie with Paul Newman in it called Judge Roy Bean. And it was, Judge Roy Bean was a real guy. And so this was a town that Judge Roy Bean grew up in. And so I showed up in this town the same time as a hiker. It was hiking from uh, the western side of Texas to the eastern side of Texas, drawing all the plants. And he and I literally pulled into this little one-place um, town at the same time. And uh, there's another guy that showed up. His name, and when we were at the bar there, his name was Van Hedges. And he introduced himself as a Walt Disney cowboy. So he'd grown up in this little town and gone off to... Uh, be a cowboy uh, at Walt Disney World and came back and said, so do you guys want to see, and I'm not going to do accents, I'm not very good at it, but essentially, do you want to all see some uh, some poisonous snakes and some really cool things? And so he said, I'll put you up tonight. So he took us to the old uh, hotel built in the early 1800s or mid, I guess, 1830, something like that plus or minus 20 years sam knows that unless i have science something in me i my my realm of reality can vary quite a bit but it was a long time ago and uh there was just the first floor on it so i put us up there we put up our sleeping bags uh you could feel the the, the ghosts being there the old wild west and he came first thing in the morning took us out into all these back canyons, places you'd never be able to go on your own or imagine, and showed us all kinds of things, community from his viewpoint. Um, but that's just a, a little micro example of what might happen in a typical day of meeting people, experiences. Uh, from then, it was heading on uh, across the Painted Desert to um, Nevada is my, one of my favorite states. You have these mountain ranges that run north-south, and you go over one after another, and each one um, can be incredibly different than the other one. And so you go from these pines down there. Sometimes I'd ride at nighttime. Uh, in Texas, one time I was riding, and the moon was full, and you could see the mule deer jumping all over the place. I stopped when I almost had a major collision with an armadillo. Now, if you're a bicycle and an armadillo's in the road, it's no small thing when you're traveling 20 miles an hour. So um, I climbed up to uh, going from uh, Mono Lake on the Nevada side up into the top of C uh, the Sierras coming into Yosemite, and it's an incredible uh, almost hour and a half downhill ride into Yosemite Valley. 
and uh, it snowed on me coming down into there. That was June. So when I was up at Tuolumne Meadows, um, there was almost 13 feet of snow. They had just opened up the pass. It was at about, I think it's at about, it's over 11,000. I want to say, yeah, it's close to 11,000 feet. So when you're in the mountains, the downhill ride, you can hit speeds on a loaded bicycle easily up around 45, 50 miles an hour. Um, going up them, you need to have a special granny gear. And the thing that I learned in bicycling is not to stretch your legs. So one of the mistakes we make is to try to push them. You want to spin your wheels. Um, by that time, you become a pretty good bike mechanic. Um, I had had a bicycle wheel totally disintegrate on me and have to build it in Louisiana. Um, I had a seat break. I've had, you know, some various parts to take care of. From I lived in San Francisco with a friend that was uh, doing a master's degree in botany um, at Berkeley. And so we, I, I was right next to the Hare Krishna Temple. And that was quite a deal in the 1980s because you had a lot of the 70s left over at Berkeley. So I got to see kind of the flower era of uh, life in the Berkeley area and be exposed. That was my first public out job as far as doing environmental ads. So they had um, Calperg. There's Minperg, and what that is, people go out and they will uh, make or uh, do educational pushes for various environmental issues. And so I learned that I was having a hard time going door to door on uh, doing stuff. Um, I had jobs in San Francisco. It was during a depression. It was hard to find work, but I still found some. And then I headed up to um, headed up to uh, Seattle, kind of toured around the Pacific parks there. And during this time, I was also doing a lot of hiking. So whenever I'd come to a national park or whatever, I would do a lot of hiking. In an average day, it was easy to travel 100 miles. The most that I traveled in one day was... 160 miles in about eight hours. And that was heading out of Glacier National Park. So once I hit uh, up the Pacific Northwest, I came down Highway 2, or over on Highway 2 towards Minnesota. And um, that was a quick ride across the Dakotas. The wind was pushing me. And I learned to appreciate prairies. And it was kind of interesting because then the next two years I spent, once I get back to Minnesota, I, I spent working for the Nature Conservancy on prairie conservation, um, doing that. So my bike trip not only exposed me to a changing landscape on a level where you could see change in a day, um, but also the continuity of it, that there's a connection between the desert and here. It doesn't happen just like that. And so I, I called my trip the bike or uh, turtle on wheels. So it was slow enough to appreciate change but fast enough to see change. That was my, my bike adventure. Um, I like to bike living up here, but it's been uh, in, in the mountain country of Northeastern North Shore here, uh, it's pretty steep. And my wife and I both bought uh, two years ago um, electric bikes. And man, that is a game changer. It is so cool to have this electric bike where you still get to spin, you still get the aerobic, but you can travel um, to work without putting a sweat up. It's not like a free ride. You have to pedal. But you can do amazing things. And for my older knees, it's, it's great. Wow. That sounds like such an incredible trip. And I think there were about 
50 questions that I thought of while you were telling us that story. Now, I can't remember too many of them, but um, a couple things that I wanted to ask uh, just to get some perspective is one, how long, um, uh, I guess it's, it's sort of hard to define if you're staying in places longer than another, but um, how long in total did you spend on this trip and what were some of your biggest challenges in um, transportation, but also just um, differences in uh, lifestyle between uh, being like settled and working a job out of one location versus running around the country? Yeah. Um, so one thing with a little frugality, it's very easy to live on a bicycle. I mean, you, you can camp um people will take you in and these days there's something called warm showers so if you're a bicycle rider you can essentially you know look up where there's volunteers and you can put a tent up in these yards or usually other um other places in those days there were organized bike routes called bike centennial routes they still exist i usually stayed away from those just because um I kind of like to go off the unbeaten track a little bit. And I had written a book called Blue Highways before I left, which is a really interesting book. But essentially, this uh, professor had gotten into depression and he decided to go and hit the road. And he took the blue highways on the map, so the US highways rather than the, the interstates. And his goal was to stop in a town and just to get to know the population. So I found myself being. Um, not having a challenge with um, with the idea of the transportation. It was scary at times. It was fairly easy to get places to stay, although I, there was many times that I wished there was just some place. I think the biggest thing I had was courage that I had to work on as far as interfacing with people, and that got more with confidence. Um, and I was gone a year, just about, until returned in September, left or left in September, returned in September. And of the 13,000 miles of riding, um, I probably did about three or 400 miles of working, or of walking. And then also um, of that time period, I spent time visiting in communities. So I was in the East Coast visiting for probably about four weeks lived in florida for i think three months worked in in new orleans for over a month and worked in san francisco for about a month and a half uh so it was only about half of that time was i tr actually traveled so yeah i think confidence in myself ability to communicate and letting my imagination really flow because uh, if anything, that's what I, I learned as a kid with the special ed stuff was how to use my imagination. So confidence and imagination um, were the biggest things that I came away with gaining and then a sense of community and that I was kind of special, that anybody could be kind of special, that you can go out and do something. That's amazing. Um, so a couple of follow-up questions. Um, 
did you have any uh what was your favorite part of the country that you got to see through uh this bike trip and what were some of your favorite um person-to-person like interactions with a, a stranger okay let's see so i'll try to tell a couple stories of the strangers first um i was in louisiana quick was riding by pulled over and um they uh, family invited me down for a crawdad dinner. I never had these. I mean, you were used to little like crayfish in Minnesota. And Sam and I had spent September. Was it September, Sam? I think so. We were it, out. It took forever to find them all, but I think it was either September or late August. And, and Sam's quite a quite a catcher of crayfish, but um, man, you need a lot. But the crawdads down in Louisiana are huge. Anyway, the family just invited me, you know, in and, and did that. Um, in some cases, it was meeting relatives that I had never met. And uh, I remember one one relative that was Christian science, and it was like, wow, I had no idea what Christian science was about. And so I was just like asking questions all over the place. Um, it might have been a situation where somebody just says, hey, you can stay in my backyard and uh, with a filling station. And I'm... And, uh, they taught me some French. I learned some English. Um, it might be experiencing a new food. I um, had a friend who was a teacher in Buffalo. And so this was like, what did I say? Like 83, 84. And said, Peter, let's go get some chicken wings. And I never heard, you know, what's chicken wings? So the Buffalo chicken wings, it's before they really hit national popularity. And it's the only, because he said, let's get the really hot ones. Okay. And he said, if you do, we got to use the blue cheese, you know. It's the only food that I've hurt, have hurt my um, body going in and out of me. So, um, you know, so experiencing new foods and, and having being overwhelmed. Um, it, the last, was maybe the last night or so, um, it was the idea of pulling up to this little wayside rest in this couple in this camper um, where you could tell they were kind of nervous about this guy and this bicycle. And finally they came out and I had learned that they were local farmers. They were probably in their up, upper 80s and they had gone to their best friend's house. It was, this was just around September and it was they every year they would bring their biggest potatoes and see who had the biggest potato of the year. It was just a social reason for them to get out. They were so proud of their potato, and they, they, we had gotten talking, and I was camping on the cement picnic table, and they were in their camper, and they, they were bringing me food, you know, and it's like they warmed up, and pretty soon they were my grandparents, and they started telling the story about the potato. And it was, like, fascinating me that this was happening. And they gave me this huge potato that was, like, 12 inches long, no lie. And... I brought it all the way home because they were so proud of it. And they said, here, you should bring this potato home. Um, and uh, so those are some examples of uh, people interactions. And again, like I said, I think for places, it's not necessarily the individual place. It's watching similarities, continuity. And I remember saying earlier that I was looking for uh, how things stand out. So it's like you ride into your town and you go, that grocery store is in Louisiana, but it's also up in Pennsylvania, but I haven't seen it in between. 
or you know so it's urban life it's um it's walking from one borough to the other in new york city and having my you know or i grew up in philadelphia and seeing this urban area um and understanding how all these people are crammed in there and then riding and being essentially in uh a huge hurricane almost with sand being piled up um so i think as far as 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 places i won't say it's one particular place it's watching the transitions the similarity and the differences that really fascinated me hey you yeah you Hey, if you like what you hear today, why don't you just uh, go ahead and click that subscribe button. And then after the show, you can go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Helps new listeners find the show. All right, let's get back to that interview. And you've got another big adventure planned coming up soon, right? Yeah, so um, one of the student naturalists uh, of uh, Sam's here, Caroline, she is a big sailor and got me into this idea and about um, sailing again, because I grew up with uh, sailing on the city lakes and raced uh, sailboats down there and literally every day I could from the time I was in about eighth grade or ninth grade until through college, I was on a sailboat. And I had done some sailing up here, but uh, Caroline kind of let me know about some classes and I took those classes to kind of get into stuff and I started to get more excited about sailing. And then I met and this is kind of that idea of your life is determined by um, just random things happening. I went and saw this movie about racing around the world. And it um, was a particularly about this women's group that, that was the first one to compete in this, this movie. And I got super idea about this, uh, stoked about this idea of, of using sailing, which was one of my favorite things to do and try, you know, try to do, to see the world. And then um, I knew a couple of sailors uh, in the area, and I went down and um, sailed with one of them, a charter uh, with Mark. And, uh, you know, I was saying, what do you think? Do I have the skills to sail? He said, oh, yeah, you can do it. And he then went and um, said, Peter, I think I found your sailboat. So Carrie and my wife and I, she said, what do you think, Peter? Should you try to go look for a sailboat? I was thinking about retiring and so on. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. And so we went over to Michigan and the sailboat was pretty expensive, you know, for, for me to get into the big time sailing to make it a boat to go around the world. You need something kind of around 30 feet. People, Gary Spee sailed, you know, in what an eight foot boat is from Minnesota across the Atlantic, but typically... You know, it's a bigger boat. So the short of it is, is I got this little sailboat with encouragement. And uh, since then, uh, Mark and another friend of mine in the town of Finland here have been helping me get this boat ready. And so right now in front of me, I've got all these deals to fix it up. The boat was built in the 1970s and it's 31 feet long. It's a cutter. So it has uh, a certain number of sails. But it's sailed every ocean of the world, essentially, this class of boat. And so my hope is to become a good good sailor in Lake Superior. I have to sail it back this spring from um, Lake Huron, where it's at right now. And uh, once I get it back, I'm hoping within the next two years that I can essentially sail down the Atlantic seaboard 
around Cape Horn, which can have 100-foot waves. Um, I have a better frontal lobe now than I did when I rode my bicycle, so I know I'll be a lot careful, more careful. Uh, but making visits, studying birds along the way. So there's a lot of fabulous bird spots going down the Atlantic of Central and South America. Come up the West Coast Parkway uh, to the Galapagos Islands, studying birds again at spots I can stop, and then head over towards um, Australia and New Zealand, then head to Japan, up along Asia, and over to the Lucians, down the Aleutians to Alaska, Alaska down to the Suez Canal, and through the Suez and back. So I don't know if this trip will happen, but this is how I happen to do my bike trip. I just started talking about it, and I'm not going to hold myself to it, but it's going to be fun planning it. Maybe I'll only end up in Lake Superior, but uh, again, uh, on the other tail end of my life, I want to uh, do an adventure. That sounds incredible. Um, I really hope you do that. And when you do that, I want to have you back on here so we can talk about that whole trip. Sounds great. And I'm definitely interested for joining parts of that trip, especially like New Zealand. And I'd love to go to like the Slate Islands and stuff in Lake Superior. Yeah, I'll have to do that, Sam. It'll be fun. I guess the last thing that I'd leave you on is that um, I I think that um, that I'm lucky to have the career that I have where I've been actually happy doing my job. And I was just listening to a program where a lot of a lot of countries uh, have their kind of whether they're doing well based on happiness. And uh, if the United States moved that way. So I'm really blessed that I had things that I like to do. I got to work with people like Sam, got to meet a lot of cool people. I have friends. I was just playing Uno with a group of uh, a three-year-old and a five-year-old today. And I have some friends in their 80s and a lot of 20-year-olds that I'm friends with. And so I think if we just go out and share our happiness in the world, and what we have a good time with, it makes our lives a lot more fun. And one of the ways that I can do that is through my imagination. And when I was real shy, I didn't feel so confident. So what I started to do was to tell stories. And when I tell stories, um, I'm actually a pretty truthful person, but I will try to pull the wool over people's eyes, I guess. And um, most of the time, you know, a wink, wink in my eye, they will get on. And they're so glad when they figure out I'm telling a story. It becomes kind of this game. And um, Sam was asking me. So Sam's been the receiver of a few stories. He's also got me. But um, imagination in all sorts of the world, I think, would serve us well, including the world of truth. Um, if we tell for, for fun stories or fibs, rather than trying to deceive people, I think it's a lot healthier place. My favorite fib, he was asking me what that might be. And one of the student naturalists at Wolf Ridge one time, um, 
well, two of them that come to mind was we were, um, I was bringing somebody that was arriving from Wolf Ridge from the airport up along the North Shore of Lake Superior, and we were coming out of Duluth, and we went by um, Glenshane Mansion. As you all three know, probably, you know, there's the famous murder that happened there. And they are asking me about this murder. And so kind of straight-faced, I said, yeah, it's an interesting murder. They still haven't quite figured out how, how she, how Marjorie killed um, the person with the toilet plunger. I go, toilet plunger? <laughs> so I let that one sit for about two days, and the person started telling stories, asking everybody about the t toilet plunger that was used to kill at the Glensheen Mansion. And they said, oh, it's Peter, huh? But the other one that sticks in my head um, was um, telling, or in a conversation, usually the best stories are when you weave in, give a little factual material. And if you just kind of have that set up, and sometimes people will grab that and ask you a question. So if you give them a little bait, and then they ask you it. And so this question came up, what the most unusual canoe that I'd ever seen was. And I told them that it was a shrunk wool canoe that over in Iceland, they would weave these, um, or they would knit these big canoes, and then they would put them in hot water and make this shrinked, uh, shrink wooled canoe. And this person was so serious about it, that I had a hard time telling them the truth. I've had snowballs thrown at me a lot most of the time, most of the time smiles, but I have to thank everybody that's been the recipient, and I'm sure that I will get my share of stories told back before I die. Yeah, Peter definitely got me once really well. Um, we were going to like a STEM fair, and <clears throat> throughout the course of a couple days, he told me that he had been a famous trumpet player, and then he mentioned he had dated some famous person in Europe who I didn't know who they were um, and build it up to the point where I had to like check with someone when I got back if it was true or not. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter. We really appreciated uh, hearing stories about your life and uh, learning a little bit more about bird banding. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's not every time that you get to, to share, share stuff in your head. So thank you for being so nice and asking me questions. This podcast is available on all your favorite platforms, such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.